I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hop Forward podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a show entirely dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, Hopheads, and welcome to another sesh on the Hop Forward podcast. Last summer, I was invited to East London to visit a brand new brewery. Nestled away under three railway arches, a mere stone's throw from Hoxton Overground Station, Great Beyond Brewing Company were in the throes of commissioning their brew house and putting their taproom together ready for launch later in the year. John and Ollie, co-founders along with their friend Nick, who I didn't meet at the time, showed me around the space. Now at the time you had to bend your imagination to shape to be able to see in your mind's eye the plants, the greenery and the idyllic little space that would become their taproom. Go on Instagram and check it out and you'll see exactly what I mean. When I visited, the only thing in place were four serving tanks ready to serve up delicious beers at the appointed time. Their brew house situated on a lovely purple floor. I mean, who doesn't like a good brew floor, right? was undergoing its final clean down before being ready to brew their first beers. The economic forecast at the time wasn't good though. We were weeks away from a new prime minister taking office, a parliamentarian who would prove to be the UK's shortest serving prime minister, no names mentioned. Energy prices were starting to soar and a feeling of foreboding was beginning to take hold of the UK's hospitality and brewing industry. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, in London, a city with around 120 breweries making some of the finest beers the world has to offer, why would anyone even consider opening a new brewery at the moment? Fortunately, John and Ollie are no mere strangers to the brewing industry. Armed with many years brewing experience from working at Four Pure, the pair decided during COVID times, it was time to set up their own independent brewery to make the beers they wanted to make in a sustainable, eco-friendly way. When I visited, the pair showed me around Hoxton for me to get a feel for the place before enjoying beers at a great pub called Howl at the Moon and an independent bottle shop called Seven Seasons. When I headed back to get my train walking down Shoreditch High Street after our meeting, I was in no doubt that these guys have what it takes to create a brewery and tap room that will be treasured by the local community and become a go-to destination for beer drinkers from across London and beyond. Since our meeting, the brewery have finally managed to open their tap room after some licensing issues, which you'll get to hear about, and are serving up a range of some fantastic beers, such as Hoxton Fresh, their Session IPA, Hoxton Lager, and many rotating beers going wherever their creativity takes them. If you're in London, I wholeheartedly recommend you check them out. Not only do they make really tasty beer, but they're really super people as well. In this discussion today, we chat about their brewery, their time at Four Pure and the lessons they learned there. We talk about sustainability and the practical steps it takes to make your business as environmentally friendly as possible. We get technical about hopping and yeast. And we talk about the time that John met Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. 
So grab a beer from the fridge and stay tuned for all that and more after this short message. Here at Hot Forward, we are as passionate about brewing a great business as much as we are about making great beer. We're creative beer specialists, offering marketing, branding, and commercial development for breweries and beer businesses of all shapes and sizes. We're here to help you grow your beer business in a profitable and sustainable way. With experience in brand building, marketing and design, business development, and commercial brewing, we can help you in the following areas brand development, marketing strategies, brewery consultancy, and commercial success. I'm Nick. And I'm Sean. And we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Visit hotforward.beer today to find out more. Thanks for your time, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by John and Ollie from East London's newest microbrewery, Great Beyond Brewing Company. Hello. Hey, how you doing, I'm hey, Nick. good, thank you. How are you guys? You look cold. Yeah, it's very cold here. Uh, we're in our office arch. It's totally unheated and uh, we're very bundled up at the moment. <laughs> we must look ridiculous to you. <laughs> uh, no, it's fine. I've been sat here with my hat on and everything. It's yeah. absolutely freezing up north. Great. Well, firstly, can you tell us a little bit about who you guys are and about Great Beyond? Yeah. So, um, uh, Ollie and I are co-founders of Great Beyond Brewing Company, along with a third friend of ours, uh, Nick. Uh, we all met at our last job. I'm sure we'll get into that. And uh, we decided to start Great Beyond Brewing Company because we really wanted to start a brewery that made the kind of beer that we really believe in and uh, that we're really passionate about. You know, we love brewing. We've been in the industry for a long time and we're very, uh, we, we love beer and it's, uh, and we felt like the time was right in our lives to do something like this. And so we reflected like everybody else during COVID about our lives and uh, developed a business plan. And it was really important that we thought it sort of made sense mechanically, like as a business, but also that it aligned with our values. And um, so we kind of put those things sort of at the center of everything. And then Great Beyond Brewing Company is the result, which is a small... Uh, brewery based in Hoxton, sort of right around the corner from the overground station. It focuses on, we focus on small batches, 10 hectoliter batches uh, to sell as much as we can through the tap room and also locally, you know, so nearby little pubs like uh, Howl the Moon or uh, bars like TT Liquor or bottle shops like Kill the Cat or Seven Seasons, you know, so the beer is available within walking distance from the brewery. But then all up and down East London, we hope to sort of become increasingly sort of a local presence and uh, really anywhere, really anybody who wants a beer is more than welcome to have it. But we have a really a focus on on our backyard in East London and the tap room, especially that's uh, sort of the heart and soul of the whole operation. Amazing. And you guys have only just opened, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. So we kind of had a soft launch from early November, uh, so to speak. Like it wasn't our intention to have a soft launch. Uh, the plan was to actually launch in September, and I'm sure we'll get into that too. Uh, but yeah, it was sort of a soft launch in early November, and we've sort of fully properly launched in the last 10 days or so. Amazing. So very new. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as a new brewery in London then, London's got around 120 breweries operating at the moment, is that right? Somewhere, Somewhere like figure, that. Yeah. yeah. What do you feel makes Great Beyond stand out? And I mean, why should people pay you guys a visit 
I mean, so there are many awesome breweries in London who make great beer. I mean, that goes without saying. I think um, the market, on the one hand, the market might feel kind of saturated if you look at it purely in terms of shelf space or rotating taps. And that's why we decided to really focus in on a brewery that was built around the tap room first and foremost. So the location is great. So we're, you know, within walking distance of, you know, the, the old street, uh, we're close to Liverpool street, we're close to Shoreditch. We're uh, around the corner from Columbia road flower market. Uh, so we have a very sort of central location. Uh, so the tap room, uh, we believe will become a bit of a destination to have, uh, fresh, interesting beer. So we'll have a couple of flagships and then we'll, uh, have a lot of rotating beers and specials and, uh, and beer that made from the best ingredients, you know, whole real ingredients. And, um, so the destination element and the, uh, and then, uh, the, uh, let me think about how the best way to put it is, I think London has a lot of breweries and, um, and I think sometimes all the competition, uh, can, uh, lead to a lot of breweries just sort of, uh, or not kind of eat copying each other a lot and kind of, and, and, and it's, and I think we, with our tap room, we, we, I think we'll just have the ability to just kind of do what we want in the way that we want to do it. And then if other people want to buy that beer and stock it elsewhere, that's a sort of cream on top for us. Mm. We really put an effort into, into making the space intimate, cozy, welcoming, uh, you know, inclusive. So I mentioned we're around the corner from, uh, Columbia Road. So we, uh, it's a great place to buy plants. Um, and especially when you show up, you know, when you show up 20 minutes before it closes, uh, then you get real good deals. And so we will fill the tap room with lovely, beautiful plants. Um, it's a little railway arch, uh, kind of intimate. It's not one really high ceilinged railway arch. It's quite a low ceiling. And, um, we've, yeah, we're slowly going to keep sort of decorating it and making it better. Nice, cozy vibes, nice lighting, candles in the evening, and then super fresh beer. And um, yeah, I'm, I, I, you know, back, back to like the London sort of beer scene. I think um, it's also, you know, it's important to remember that like, although we're, we're you know, the whole, the entire economy is, is, uh, you know, we're all going through rough times right now. It's people, I think in our industry, sometimes we can be a little self-centered and we're, we're focused in on the brewery closures, which, you know, and uh, that's obviously something we should be uh, look looking at and thinking about. Um, but fundamentally it's uh, it's about business models, right? And if, whether you're, whether you're viable or not, it comes down to your margin and, uh, and your, your overheads. And I think what we're all seeing right now is uh, people are being squeezed on margin and um, but their demand is actually still, I think, relatively strong uh, for people to go out and enjoy a, an evening as a, as a sort of affordable luxury. People tend to defer things like, you know, putting in a new kitchen or a bathroom or whatever people or a holiday, um, in a recession. And, uh, but beer is actually an affordable luxury. Mm -hmm. So if we think about, if you think about your positioning and if you, and you think about your route to market and how you're going to get your margin in these challenging times, then I think, It'll kind of be okay. Uh, many businesses fail when uh, when you go through a recession and rising interest rates mean you know it's especially more difficult for for businesses that have a lot of debt. But uh, we uh, we're fortunate because uh, we have 
our tap room uh, as the sort of centerpiece. And we're starting to see great momentum behind it with the uh, local love and regulars coming in. And, uh, and as, as the brand gets out there and more people hear about us and taste our beer elsewhere, more people will start to come to our tap room and it'll be a virtuous circle. And tap room is where we can sell beer in a way that still gives us that margin despite the energy costs and everything else. Yeah. So before we chat more about great beyonds and look to the future i'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about the past reading between the lines as people are listening to you guys you've obviously got experience i know what's about to come here but um you guys used to work for four pure before and after the buyout by little lion world so i'd be interested just to explore for a few minutes what that experience was like yeah for simplicity let's call it lion okay yeah (laughs) but uh so, you know, I'll go first. I spent the most time there. I was there for nine years. Um, so Dan and Tom, the co-founders, they hired me to help them start the brewery. And um, I was the head brewer there for uh, a while. And then Lion obviously uh, bought the uh, the brewery. And I, they, I, my job title changed to brewmaster. Ollie became the head brewer. And I sort of started to also focus a lot more on quality and compliance and a little bit more of a group role. So also some things up in Huddersfield, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but what, at Magic Rock was this as well? Yeah. So I was just going back and forth on the train and right. stuff like that. But um, uh, just for things like salsa and uh, lab analysis. So we kind of merged our labs um, to do analysis and stuff on the beer. Four Pure was uh, a crazy place the first few years because the growth was sort of breakneck and there was so much knowledge and so many talented people and uh, Four Pure grew very quickly and had a lot of uh, local lines around Southeast London and the beer mile thing sort of took off around that time too. And it was a really exciting, fast-paced place to work. Made a lot of uh, really good, interesting beer. Um, and I think at a certain point, I think especially after Heineken uh, bought Beavertown, and then you also, I think a year or so before that, you had the Camden acquisition. Uh, I think it became a lot more difficult to be a sort of large independent brewery based in London with the kind of overhead that Four Pier had. Mm. So uh, the marketing muscle, the route to market that um, especially Beavertown, but also Camden had made it much more difficult for Four Pure to be able to continue to grow in the way that it had been growing. Um, so uh, different things were, you know, so obviously we went into Tesco and uh, M&S and stuff. And, uh, and it's interesting to look back as the market was evolving very and maturing very rapidly at the time. And uh uh, and I think Dan and Tom realized that they weren't going to be able to make it work really on on their own and that they needed to sell the brewery. Uh, and then Lion came in and, um, you know, I met some wonderful people who worked for Lion and there were some really good things about working for Lion, Lion in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, personal development and skills and, uh, and things like that. But, uh, they, it was a very different vibe, you know, it stopped being the sort of, uh, fun independent sort of craft brewery with a great following and where everybody was best mates and and things were sort of exciting to being a lot more corporate a lot slower a lot more focused on cost um and a stupid rebrand antagonizing the rest of the industry uh poor strategy poor execution of the strategy 
And uh, yeah, it became a bit grim, really, I think, for both of us. And, and COVID was hard uh, for everybody. And uh, But also that was sort of when we started to put our heads together and start to think about, well, what kind of brewery do we want to work for? What kind of beer do we want to make? And that's how we came up with the idea for Great Beyond, really. And we're grateful for the opportunity because it was amazing. Mm. You know, yeah, it was it was quite different for me uh, compared to what John just described because I I joined Four Pure um, around about the same time Lion uh, the, when the Lion buyout buyout happened. So I, although I knew Four Pure beforehand and um, loved the beer, I didn't really know what the culture was like before Lion bought them out. I'm guessing like the first six months, there wasn't much of a change. So it was still kind of like the old four pure. Mm. But very quickly, uh, I think it was like four, four, six months in or something, we, it turned into like a 24-hour site where you were just brewing seven times in a 24-hour period and beers became work streams. And it was all focused on, uh, rightly so, but like it was focused on um, everything, the, the numbers being red or green and and not on beer and ingredients and, and quality so and then that just continued for the rest of my time there so yeah but I, I you know I didn't I wasn't there at the beginning when it was like really cool and fun and everything else John just described so yeah but you know the, but we had you know, a great lab and brew house and canning line and yeah. centrifuge and hard piping and anything you could want really if you want to work in a, in a great brewery with great infrastructure and a lot of knowledgeable people Four Pure is a fantastic place to work in that sense. Uh, and also, there's a lot of contract brewing that happens there. Mm. You know, So matching beers from other breweries is an interesting technical challenge. So many brands have you know, gone to Four Pure over the years and been like, hey, can you make this for us? Can you make that for us? And, um, and that's quite fun and interesting to do, actually. Um, can, but can you, Are you limited to name any of those brands just out of interest? No, obviously <laughs> I mean, there are, obviously there are the, uh, the lions. That's obvious, right? Yeah, uh, but uh, no, many independent, uh, great small independent breweries have been in positions where they're given a supermarket opportunity, but they don't have salsa, they don't have the capacity, or they can't deliver it at the costs uh, required to make any margin on it. Or, for instance, and or it's a great opportunity to increase their brand exposure or something with a temporary listing at a pub group or whatever. And um, so, so many breweries have come through uh, and uh, it's, uh, but it's, for us, that was always fun, those projects. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, John mentioned it there, but it, it's a great place. If you want to just look at it selfishly, if you want to be a, improve and grow as a brewer, that place has got everything you need. You, you, um, an automated brew house, uh, every sort of uh, shiny bit of kit you'd want to ever play with and um yeah there's lots of knowledgeable people but um yeah i mean that sort of wears thin when the beer you're making and uh the message that you're putting out in the media isn't isn't great mm. yeah. what would you say the biggest lessons you learned from your time at full pure are what have you taken away with you well you know so i'm going to answer that yeah. because i think i kind of answered it before which is we spent all that time during COVID um, thinking about what we wanted to do with our lives and our careers in brewing. And, you know, we weren't really, uh, we did, we kind of lost that spark, that passion, I think at a certain point working there, despite all the intellectual stimulation, um, we, uh, and so I think the biggest lesson for us was to do something that you believe in 
I'm going to speak, I shouldn't speak for you, Ollie, but that's, that's, I, I, and I think, but that's kind of, I think what led to this, right. Us exactly, even, us yeah. even doing this in this, in the first place with great beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the question again? What have we learned? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree completely. That's, that's probably the biggest lesson we've learned. You've got to believe in what you're doing. Otherwise, What's the point? What, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before we move on from 4Pure, I have to ask, and I, I well, I make no apology for asking because I'm really curious. So uh, what, what was it like being visited by Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson and being on BBC? You know, that haunts me. <laughs> I know, I thought it might. Um, it's interesting because uh, I didn't really know the details until really the evening before about who was there. I was told that there was a senior minister from the government and it was just going to be a quick photo op thing. Uh, we want you to do it. Uh, and I didn't, and I'd say, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of this. I, I'll be full. I very much am not a fan of, I'll, I'll just say it. I really am not a fan of the conservative party uh, or their policies. And I think they've been actively damaging this country for the entire time I've lived here. I've been here for 12 years. Obviously, I can vote in this country and I should, I'm not, I don't mean to, I don't mean to offend any listeners or any potential customers who are conservative party members, uh, but I don't think they're good for the country and I don't think they're good for the industry, actually, for that matter. I didn't really know what the situation was. And then sort of the evening before I heard who it was and there was like a, when I got a security screening call. And at that point, for me, really, I didn't expect it to be a big thing, actually, in a way, because they do a million of these every, every week, you know, they go around the visit places and they, and there's like, and you know, so I didn't really think it would end up being a big thing. And also kind of just seemed kind of like it'd be a cool experience, you know, you know, this, uh, it's not every day you get to meet uh, a world leader as much as you don't like them. And, uh, and just the presence of security and media and snipers on the roof. And it just, you know, it seemed like kind of a unique one-off experience. And, um, and it was interesting. You know, the most interesting thing was I had some private time with them and then I had time with them with the cameras on. And when the cameras turn on, uh, Boris Johnson just changes and becomes this performer. And it's really scary and creepy to see. He's very mm. charming when you meet him with the with the cameras off and charming in like a in like with, but with like icy eyes and the, the face of someone with, with a drinking problem. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Are and the snipers the on the roof for Boris and Rishi? Or- <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, but he immediately starts his performance and what's kind of gross about it as well is the symbiotic relationship between the media who are there with their cameras and him. They are aware. They're following him around all day. They are aware that he's a different person when the camera turns on. And Rishi Sunak was really just like your... Um, your classic sort of well-briefed empty suit politician. His hair was immaculate. He read a he read a, a piece of paper in the limo on the way here that gave him some questions to ask me. He asked me those questions that were on that piece of paper. He feigned interest and that was it. <laughs> but so he was like a generic sort of boring politician really. And Boris Johnson was just creepy. I'm sorry, but I did have to ask that. And, no, it's fine. I don't mind. You know, and if Keir Starmer ever wants to come by, he's more than welcome to. Oh, I was, I was, I can't even when it was. It wasn't too long ago when um, I was sat watching BBC News one evening, and there was a completely unrelated article that came on about the economy. It wasn't nothing to do with breweries, and then all of a sudden, there's that clip of Four Pew, and I'm like, No, that's John. <laughs> That's, you're That's not telling what? <laughs> and my, and my brain was like, 
and I'm like, no. I've got to ask about that. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, it's it 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 truly is haunting because I, it's shortly before all the party gate stuff kicked off, right? right? And um, and I think the media just decided it was the perfect footage. And maybe it was like the last time they were like filmed together or something. I don't know what it is, but like they're holding the Partygate thing. Yes. Yeah, that, exactly. So, and then, so, you know, I still get messages from friends and stuff uh, periodically where like, oh, they're showing the footage again. And uh, it was on like a half like an hour said, cycle. Like you kept popping up on TV every half an hour. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. But that's also why I'm like, I'm happy to just be honest about uh, both my politics uh, and also, uh, you know, what it was like to meet those uh, uh, those clowns, two, two individuals. <laughs> yeah, especially absolutely ghoulish Boris Jones. Yeah. Well, let's move on to better things then. So let's chat about Great Beyond. How have you found the process of setting up a microbrewery in a tasting room in today's economic climate? So, yeah. <laughs> Everybody says it's going to be hard to open a brewery. And they're right. It is hard. And if my number one piece of advice for anybody who wants to do it is uh, don't do it unless you're really, really, really sure. Because it's hard anyway, and it's even harder now. Uh, so we uh, we had some delays, um, and the delays were extremely challenging. So we don't have a lot of money. We don't have any big backers or anything. It's like our money, and we have like 20-odd small investors. Um, and so it's friends and family and people that we know and um, and, uh, it's been, the delays have made it much more difficult. So we, I, I don't know, uh, do you want to, should, should I get into that a little bit? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. So we, we were obviously, we were in our notice period when we were uh, finishing up at our old jobs and, uh, you were using weekends and evenings to work on the business plan, to raise money, to find a location, to source secondhand equipment, to be at the site, sort of starting to work on the build and the installation and, you know, the flooring guys and letting them in in the morning and then letting them out and locking up and after them in the evening and doing electrical work, whatever it was, you know, between the, the three of us or uh, we were basically working two full-time jobs. And we realized the premises license thing was something that, you know, licensing law is a labyrinth. We, it wasn't something we were going to be able to do ourselves. So we decided we wanted to hire some external help. So we hired a consultant to do the application for us. And um, a couple of things. So, but firstly, we submitted a bad application. Um, it was a, an application that uh, didn't, wasn't within, was outside of Hackney's core hours. So it was outside of Hackney's licensing policy. Uh, there was no, so we didn't do any local engagements. It was a really sort of maximalist um, application. Um, and the consultant said, that's what you're supposed to do. That's how you get the license that you want. If you apply for what you want, you don't, then the council counters and then you negotiate and you're going to end up with less than what you need. So you got to go maximalist. Then you negotiate down to what you actually need. That was his advice. And we had no reason to question that. It was bad advice. Uh, and uh, it antagonized, it scared um it scared and antagonized uh, the CEO of the um, luxury property development that, that we're next door to. So there's some really nice uh, flats next door with some really lovely people who uh, live in them, who are our customers. Uh, but uh, the CEO of the company who owns uh, those buildings uh, basically made it his personal mission to stop us from opening. So he um, paid a company to organize a petition with local residents and local businesses. Uh, and so all these 
So he letter bombed the area to organize opposition against us. He hired an expensive lawyer. He, um, he reached out to the council, members of the council, at, whether it was the licensing team, planning, everything that he could do to stop us from opening. He made some visits as well that were, I would describe them as intimidating um, to our site when we, while we were here working. And, uh, and so we were denied our first application, but additionally, there was all this organized opposition against us at that point. Uh, and it was based on like a, on a combination of the what our consultants had applied for, uh, painting a picture of a business that wasn't like what we actually wanted to be, uh, and additional fear mongering on top of that. Right. And um, but luckily, actually, um, the the upside is this petition also meant that suddenly all these people became aware that a brewery was opening in the area and was a bit of free marketing. Uh, but it also meant that we had to uh, delay our launch. We had to launch under in early November under temporary events for our tap room. So we could only do two, three days a week. That made it harder to build momentum. And meanwhile, we were pre-revenue for much longer and uh, paying rent and um, way more expensive legal costs because we had to apply for our license again. We had to get very good, very expensive lawyers to do so. We had to do all sorts of community outreach. And so we were kind of in survival mode uh, from about September, and uh, it led to yeah big delays and lots of extra expenses. And uh, eventually, we had our hearing for our second license application in mid December, and we were granted that license with uh, no amendments. Um, but it was a slimmed down license application compared to what we actually wanted in terms of at least the. Um, we would have. We'd love to have a little bit of outdoor seating in the front, but we we can't uh, have that at least for now. Uh, and we have a, a capacity of seventy four people for our tap room. We wanted about a hundred. Right. Uh, but we're grateful to have the license. So we've been operating under that license for about a week now. Right. And the stuff is kind of behind us. And now we can sort of focus on sort of the next steps. But it definitely stalled our momentum. And also other things, you know, like the World Cup and. Launching a brewery in November is never ideal because, you know, it's hard to get listings before Christmas and everybody in in December is busy with big bookings and everything. And we didn't have any big bookings because we're only open two, three days a week. And we were so focused on just getting the business stood up properly. Yeah. And how have you found it, Ollie, having come from 4Pure where there's this fully automated or singing or dancing kit with this amazing lab by the sounds of it? to now working on a much smaller kit. How have you found the process of creating beers on that kit and getting to grips with it? Yeah, um, honestly, not not too difficult, uh, Nick, because I obviously didn't start at 4Pure on a on a 2 million quid automated kit. Um, I started in, um, in a brew pub on a 4 hectolitre, completely manual kit, and then worked at a different site where it was like a 20 hec manual kit. So I'm... And I homebrewed before that. So I'm, you know, although it was a, a nice luxury to press buttons and not have to dig a, a mash tun or allow to tun out uh, for pure, it's it's something that I've easily slipped back into. Uh, it's quite nice actually, because for the last like almost three years of being at for pure, I was just sat in an office and organizing shifts and, and, and brew schedules and, and whatnot. So it's, it's really nice just to get back to, to brewing again. And I'm not going to lie. It's been, uh, that some of the early brew days were like 15 hours long. They were, right. and it was like the middle of the summer. So it was really hot and really sticky. No, it was October. Oh yeah, it was October. It was still hot and sticky. Hot and sticky <laughs> in October, I remember it, yeah. <laughs> it really was, yeah. But um, yeah, not, not too bad. And we're slowly, um, we're on like brew 14, I think now. 
Um, so yeah, we're each time we're improving and, and the process is getting a little bit easier. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not been too bad. Yeah. My back definitely felt it after the first <laughs> couple of weeks. <laughs> I mean, talk about your beers. We've not even chatted about your beers yet. I saw that you've just released at the time of recording this podcast, a cherry sour aged with something or other, some kind yeah. of... Yeah. Wooden barrel or something? No, no, no barrels. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, no barrels. Reverse, reverse. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, well, Ollie, what is it? Oh yeah, uh, it's um, yeah, seven percent uh, cherry sour with uh, sort of conditioned on tonka beans and that was it. Yeah, um, a couple of different um, oak varieties chips. of oak chips. Oak chips. That's where I got the wood thing from. Yes. Yeah. We we'd love to. We've got space for barrels and we've got plans for barrels, but. Obviously, we don't have any barrels yet, so we're, you know, the oak chips are the next best thing. Yeah, when you're this this early on, but and the oak, oak chips were really kind of more for like the tannin structure and the yeah. mouthfeel and the flavor profile, really, in the beer, because the tonka beans give a really nice sort of some some nice sweeter aromatics, and we did a combination of um, sour and sweet cherries, mostly sour cherries, and uh, just like with the so we did another beer called the Raspberry Incident when we first launched. I remember um, that beer. Tell the story yeah, of that beer. There is a story. There is a story. There's actually a second story with that beer now, but I'll, I'll tell you that in a second. But the um, the uh, we just want to use the best ingredients, you know. So whole uh, fruit, uh, cherries, and uh, whole whole cherries, and likewise with the raspberry incident, whole raspberries. The reason we called it the raspberry incident is because we we bought the fruit. Uh, so you, the farm is a farm that sells the fruit directly. They harvest the the fruit and then they flash freeze the fruit. So it's like the freshest possible fruit you can get. Basically, we assumed the fruit would be like in sealed containers. So when the fruit was delivered, we put them in our cold store and we left it there for the weekend so that we could add it to the tank on Monday because the beer wasn't quite ready for the fruit yet. And over the weekend, the fruit defrosted and they weren't in sealed <laughs> containers. And the entire cold store, it looked like like someone had gone on like a killing spree in there. <laughs> and it was it was ridiculous. It smelled amazing. The whole fucking room. Yeah, we, we left them on the Can you swear? Can you like... swear on this podcast? Yeah. The whole room. The, the whole <laughs> smelled like raspberries. And uh, yeah, we left. It was too depressing to clean like up. Ten days. So we left, we left. We just left it. On, and then and and then. Uh, but anyway, we we ended up um, obviously ordering more fruit. And uh, we named the beer the Raspberry Incident because of that incident. And then we got the labels, and um, there's a typo on the beer on the back. We've been so busy and distracted. We called the beer the Raspberry Incident. We got the and there's a typo in the first word on the description. So rather than calling the beer uh, refreshing, it says refreshing. So we are. So we are. We're gonna break. We're gonna brew this beer again because it's so good. So we're gonna brew the raspberry incident probably a couple of times a year, and we're always gonna call it refreshing. Like in our socials <laughs> and the description, it's just the most refreshing beer you'll ever have, Nick. You know, it happens though. My spelling is terrible, which is really ironic given my wife's an English teacher, <laughs> and the amount of typos that have slipped through the net. She'll pick a bottle up or a can and look at the label, and she's like, "You know, you spelled such and such wrong." It's like. Fucking hell. No. <laughs> she's, and then she's always, always, every time, and you think I would have learned my lesson, she's like, why didn't you get me to proofread it? I'm like, there was a print deadline. I need to get this beer out. <laughs> uh, it happens. Yeah. So talk, <clears throat> talk about some of your other beers, like your core range. You've got um, the English Keller beer, Hoxton Lager, and yeah. Hoxton Fresh, which is your double dry hop type IPA. Session IPA, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So we have the two, so with small core range, 
the lager is a little bit more uh, like kind of more of a taproom beer because we just know for bars, pubs, you know, like the lager lines are really critical for them to hit their margins. And so we don't expect to be able to necessarily compete for a ton of lager lines, although it'd be great to get some local places um, pouring it if they if they want it. But yeah, Hoxton Lager. So it's it's an English Keller Lager for now. We've actually made the decision very recently that we're going to move it in more of a German direction. Um, we're going to make an English lager every year, maybe even twice per year, like probably especially around the hop harvest time. Uh, but we've just, um, we've, yeah, we think that it'll make, it'll take us too long to keep reformulating the recipe to make it taste like how we want it to taste if we stay down the, and now is the time to do it, right? We've done a couple of batches. We like the beer a lot. Like the feedback on the beer is really good, but it's not the beer that we want it to be and that we think it needs to be. And we could keep trying to go down the track of doing reformulations and playing around with the hops and everything. But we're, we're frankly both too inexperienced with using English hops um, in that way in, in, in lager recipes to sort of get there quickly enough. So um, we've decided we're going to probably use some noble hops and sort of go more German with it and do more of a traditional Keller lager uh, for our Hoxton lager. And then what we'll do, yeah, is um, we want to support the English hop industry. So we're going to we're going to continue to use them frequently and well, especially in um, sort of our, our darker beers and some special releases. And we'll probably do a best bitter and stuff like that. And we have, and so we'll continue to support um, English hop growers in through other ways. Um, I think most of our beers actually have some English hop in them Yeah. anyway. And then um, the Hoxton Fresh is uh, just a really, oh, we just packaging some this week and it's so good. Yeah. Ollie, do you want to describe it? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's like a uh, 4% uh, hazy session. That, um, we've, we sort of worked on the recipe for most of the summer because we, we were really geeking out on all of the, uh, for any, this is probably, I don't know if you're, it's going to bore you, Nick, or not, but we were really geeking out on all of the sort of latest um, uh, academic papers on like the uh, files and, and, and the hot combinations that you can use to achieve this and achieve that. Mm. And we had all these these different combinations that we'd never, or since John and I had worked together, hadn't had the opportunity to use because obviously when you're working at a, uh, a four pure, you're, you're in hot contracts and you can't just um, go off and change brands. But yeah, we, we were really excited about uh, the combinations of hops and yeast. And we we sort of uh, got a bit lucky because uh, the first combination we, or combinations we landed on, they've kind of worked. And we've we've mixed, uh, we've blended yeast strains as well. We've got like a... We, yeah. use, we do use two strains in that beer. We can talk we about do. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um the it's, it's a, I don't, I haven't smelled anything like it. It's, it's like, it's really, uh, it's really catty. It's really tropical, but it also smells a bit like sherbet. Right. It's, it's. Uh, I've, I've honestly not smell, and I've, I've just been kegging it this morning. So like, I can, I can still smell it on my hands. Um, yeah, it's a really, um, it, fresh is a perfect name for it because it, when it, when it is fresh, it's just it jumps out of the glass at your. Bursts out of the glass, and it's, and it's yeah. so, and it's really smooth. It's really smooth. There's nothing. Oh, there's no harshness. There's no green sort of grassy or green tea or hot burn or whatever kind of characteristics in the yeah. beer whatsoever. It's just pure uh, hop sort of goodness. It's like it's, it's extremely balanced. Yeah. So and, are you um, dry hopping cold side and like you're not putting anything in during active fermentation? No, we see where we'll probably John's going to tell me shush again. <laughs> no, we we, um, we kind of there's not like a big dry hop at all. We're like 
because we, we've got like a leaf hop back and we're trying to let with all of our hoppy beers because if you um you know everyone who's a brewer knows this you, you want to get the, the maximum amount of hop aroma you can but you put too much too much hop in a cold side and you're gonna obviously get there's a load of vegetable matter there even if you use cryo you're gonna get losses and you get that hot burn so we're we're doing we're, we're hopping at pretty much every stage we're, we're mash hopping we're uh, there's some kettle hops, there's a lot of whirlpool hops, and then we're running through, these are all T90s or cryo, and then we're running through a leaf hop back. And these are all sort of like strategic varietals that add different uh, elements and different survivable compounds to... Yeah, it's really layering. It's, just, it's more about layering it. So by the time you, you're ready to, to dry hop the beer and you chill it down to whatever your dry hop temperature is, if you chill it down, I know some people do it warm, it already smells super, super hoppy. So you don't really want to um, put a massive hop charge in of, of whatever T90 or cryo and and mask that. So we've kind of been increasing it and decreasing it. We, we've just done the third batch and we're tweaking it. And I, I don't, you know, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be completed. We're always going to be tweaking it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just like, it's about picking the correct, um, the correct hops and the correct dose rate and at the <laughs> the correct uh, temperature as well. The fermentation quality. I mean, yeah. The yeah, and it's in a whirlpool edition is almost the most important edition probably. And then the yeah. double, and then the, we do dry hop it twice, of course. And um, yeah, and then um, the synergy between the yeasts and the hops is also really important. Mm. It sounds like a really, really complicated beer. It, it isn't. It's just I like talking about it. Uh, it I like hearing yeah. about it. I've, I've got a, a few <laughs> more questions while we're nerding out about hops and, yeah, and all the rest away, of it. Um, so when it when it comes to whirlpooling, and this is a subject I've been asking a lot of brewers recently, how are you avoiding with such a high hop dose oh well, i don't know how many grams per liter you are putting in a whirlpool but you know if you if you're throwing a lot of hops to get that flavor and aroma at flame out how are you avoiding getting isomerization even in the whirlpool just just through temperature because what about the contact time for me personally when you're because there are so many new hops and they all smell great when they're fresh and everyone's using these impressive uh combinations a lot of it's theory and, and you've just got to give it a go, right? And we've tried uh, a number of different, you, you definitely, we've found you definitely need to reduce the whirlpool temperature um, so you don't get a summarization and you don't pull out any of the compounds that you, you don't really want in a world. But we drop ours down, uh, it depends on the beer, but we go as low as 80, sometimes it's 85 degrees. We've even gone lower than that as an experiment. Um uh, a few brews back, but yeah. And then, um, it's just, we've just sort of read what other brewers do. Honestly, it's just like trial and error. And we're like the first time we'd, we'd whirl it for like 15 minutes and then let it sit for 15. So like half an hour. And then the next time we're like, Oh, that was good. But because we've, um, changed the combination slightly and we're putting more T90 than cryo in, shall we mess with the timings and we'll whirl it for less or more. And we're honestly, we're, we've only done three batches of it. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's tasting great, but it's all, it's all still trial and error for us. And I'm not saying we got lucky because we did a lot of research on how to make this beer, uh, taste the way it does, but yeah, it was pretty much where we wanted it to be from the first batch. Yeah. So yeah. Well, it's great. I, I mean, it is great when that happens. Yeah. I brewed, yeah. uh, it was about this time last year, um, an all British hopped IPA 
which I remember that podcast. Yeah, that so, was, so do I. We both well, I've just been asked to brew it again for Ciba Beer X um, because I'll be doing a talk with Charles Farham um, on British hops, um, and they want the brewers who are doing that roundtable discussion to bring some of the beer along in question. And that beer, like, was you know, I just dropped on with that. The whole thing just went right, and the the flavour was immense. And I did that beer again, but with a different yeast, more for me, just because I didn't have the verdant IPA yeast that I normally brew with on the second one, but I had an, another strain, and it just did no favours for the beer. It stalled early and everything. And then more for me again for. I don't know, why, why did I do it? I, I have no idea, but I brewed a, a hazy IPA before Christmas. I was hoping to release using this yeast strain and threw a load of hops in at Whirlpool, low temperature, tasted totally fine. And then I dry hopped it during active fermentation. And this yeast just seemed to, it was like 12 grams per litre of, of, of dry hop, but this yeast just seemed to like retain hot matter. I can't explain it. I've not used the yeast like it before. It just seemed to give so much hot burn. And then when I managed to settle all that out, the whole thing was just really astringent. And I was really surprised because I got that during fermentation more than in the whirlpool. So, so many people uh, absolutely will go to their deathbed and say that dry hopping during active fermentation is incredibly important. Uh, and we, neither one of us are actually in that, Camp. We've done it many times, and we've we see the benefits. Um, we find it hard to achieve consistency using that technique, and uh, so what our preference is to build in uh, the hop composition that we want uh, for biotransformation through using hot side additions, right? And controlled hot side additions, and then then the yeast will take care of a biotransformation for us during the fermentation, and then we can and then we dry hop uh, after the fermentation is done that's that's but we've experiment we probably will dry hop during active fermentation yeah. again we've done it many times before but i don't think for us that'll ever be a standard process okay. because we've we've just seen the pros and the cons and for us it's just not it doesn't really it's not really worth it yeah, it's not even about because we we don't sort of crop our yeast we're just like uh one and done yeah, yeah. so it's not that's not even the reason it's just the results we've achieved in the past aren't like isn't that great? Uh, yeah. we, we, spent, we spent so much time and money installing a fantastic yeast propagation and management system at the old place. Yeah. <laughs> and then now, <laughs> and then now we use the fresh pitch every time. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose you having worked for Four Pure, where you've got these beers you're producing again and again and again, having that luxury and creativity must be brilliant for you. Oh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And that's why I was pretty positive about earlier when you asked me the question about what's it like going back to a manual kit because like I said before we um got the keys to this this property we spent all of the time leading up to that like so this time last year leading up to the summer just writing recipes and you know midnight or, or 1am waking up with ideas and, and sending them to one another because when you're at Four Pure or an equivalent brewery on, you can't just change brands and change hops. It's a massive thing that goes through gate to gate process to, to make a tiny little tweak. Very corporate bureaucratic process. Yeah. So for for me, um, just the way because our third um, our third partner isn't full time here yet. So it's, it's 
um, it's mainly been John and me here, and I, all of the brewing responsibilities have fallen um, on my lap, which I've, I've actually really enjoyed. And um, yeah, the creative the creative side is fantastic because we've we've got like these two small uh, two hectoliter tanks that we can, as we're casting out, we can split off two heck of work into there, two into there, and we can use different yeast strains, we can use different hops, we can fruit it, we can sour it. So for me, it's like, um, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's like when you first start brewing and everything is exciting, you're like, oh, we're using a different crystal malt. Fantastic. Like <laughs> everything's like that again, because yeah. um, we can get any hops we want on the spot market, which is fantastic at the moment. There's, uh, yeah, the hop and yeast combos and and, and the sort of, uh, yeah, everything that comes with it. It's, it's, uh, it's great at the moment, but I'm sure I'm going to get bored of it at some point. And, and want to get out of the freezing <laughs> yeah. well, spring spring is coming luckily yeah yeah so you've talked about having a, a tap room a tasting room and you protecting your margins what would you say the advantages are of running a business model like that as opposed to having a tap room and it being there but then also having lots of other focuses and revenue streams like why just focus predominantly on your tap room? Yeah. So the, the, the tap room, like I said before, it's like, uh, it's the sort of beating heart of the brewery. It's, it's not the only revenue stream. We also want to sell to, you know, local, local accounts and everything. Uh, and, uh, and maybe further afield eventually too. But, um, the, so there are several things. So firstly, like the tap room, we put a lot of effort into making it a really nice, special environment, a memorable place. Um, so it's an immersive experience for people to interact with you and your brand. And um, so that's uh, a great way for people to form a relationship, a connection with you and your brewery. Um, but also just from a pure like brewing sort of point of view, I mean, we, the tap room, by definition, we need to offer people a bit of variety. So we need like a balanced menu. We need like crowd pleasers like Hoxton Lager and Hoxton Fresh. Uh, but then we also uh, want to have something new every time people show up. So we'll have a weekly rotating cask offering uh, and we'll have new, exciting, innovative beers all the time, whether it's, you know, like the raspberry incident, the cherries, the cherry and tonka bean sour we talked about, um, collaborations with friends that we're going to be starting to do soon as well. Uh, but the, the whole idea is, you know, we have 10 hectoliter system, we do 10 hex. Uh, batches so like let's say half of it uh, goes through the tap room and then we can do 10 kegs and i don't know what that would be like 50 cases or something and then you know we have a mailing list people can contact us and then local accounts can buy up those kegs and buy up those cases and we have a web shop so because we need to offer something new and something different through our tap room all the time it means we're always going to have this other all these other beers available uh, to sale elsewhere which keeps the brand sort of relevant and fresh uh, and allows us to sort of compete in the rotating tap space, uh, but without being like a slave to it, you know, uh, we can, because we have this steady trade and this steady trickle and uh, something new and exciting constantly in our tap room because uh, out of necessity, really. So I think it's sort of a best of both worlds for us. Um, so let's look a bit beyond brewing for a moment and look at sustainability which is something great beyond focusing on why do you think it's important to today's consumer and what actions are you taking to make the business and brewing more sustainable and eco-friendly uh so you know i think sustainability is very very much about mindset so uh every purchasing decision that you make as a business owner so whether it's the paper you buy for your admin 
or um, the degree to which you decide to go paperless <laughs> as possible uh, to the the font badges that we buy. They're all everything is we buy everything recycled as possible. It's uh, what kind of waste slash refuse management contracts you have. Uh, so what happens to your waste? Um, so for instance, our what happens um, to our grain and yeah, all, uh, all of our sort of um, organic that spent grain hops, even even a pizza, pizza crust from the tap room. Yeah, we've we uh, send it all to an anaerobic digester as opposed to like giving it to a farmer, which is still not the worst thing. Given you know, putting it back in the the, the food chain but um yeah we just send it to an anaerobic digester and and biogas is created and then that then fuels the lorries that come and collect the waste and, and whatever else they do with it so it's it just feels like a a bit of a more responsible way of of getting rid of um something that you need to get rid of when you're a brewer mm. yeah and then the, the mindset thing so it applies kind of across the business so it's so every purchase that you make is this the most sustainable option. So how do you reduce the amount of plastic or eliminate plastic from this or that? How do you keep the supply chains short? So it's working with local suppliers as much as possible. Um, it's And it's measuring everything. In a brewery, we use a lot of energy. You lose a lot of water. You use CO2 and nitrogen and stuff. So uh, as much as possible, we have natural carbonation in the beer uh, through just simple techniques like splending and things like that. Um, and then we we measure and we track absolutely all of our usage, and then we um, uh, we Try have to reduce it where we can. yeah, and then we have weekly meetings and we uh, and we set targets for ourselves. We try to drive improvements, um, and we all I mean, but then I mentioned the purchasing thing. So we and we also purchase green energy, and it's just like a choice that we make. And uh, our, our deliveries, we've got a few local accounts, and that they're delivered by um, like even low emission bikes or cargo bikes. Yeah. Or no emissions as well. No emissions, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's just about, and then, and then it, the reason it's a mindset thing is because it's a long journey. It's not like we're perfect now by, by no means, but it's something that's built into our operations um, from the beginning mm. and, uh, and, and into our mindset across the whole team. And then uh, we'll continue to get better. I think that you get a lot of businesses that, Talk the talk, uh, greenwashing, as a friend of mine put it yesterday when I was chatting to him. There's a lot of greenwashing on social media, but there's not actually that much action taken. And it's interesting what you said about targets, because you're the first brewer I've ever spoken to, and maybe other breweries that focus on sustainability do talk about targets, but you're the first brewery I've ever spoken to that I've talked about green targets in that way. Yeah, and it's building them into your your regular sort of operations scorecard, right? Mm. So what how much energy are you using? How much water are you using? What's what's what are the main sources? So we're not there yet, but at a certain point it becomes about measuring at the point of use. And then you can sort of isolate by activity. Um how much energy you're using for this operation, for that operation, or water or whatever it is. And um and then you can sort of try to find alternatives. And um in the long run, it's often also cheaper to focus on things like this. In the short run, not necessarily. Uh, so, for instance, like we would like to at some point, and this is years away. Right now, we more focused on we're focusing on survival. Right, we're focusing on making it through the next few months, uh, surviving as a business. Uh, but long term, we'd really like to at some point uh, make sure that we are like authentically, truly carbon neutral as a brewery. And to achieve that, we'll take a lot of time and a lot of heavy lifting. But it's time well spent because, like I said in the beginning, like we really, the biggest lesson we learned was doing something you believe in. Moving on, then it was announced recently that Dick Bruco in Birmingham 
and bad seed in Yorkshire. I can't remember where in Yorkshire they were, but up north somewhere. To, to you southerners, everything's just above the Watford Gap, isn't it? It's just the north. North of Camden is north. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, it was it was announced recently that, uh, I mean, both well-respected breweries in the UK beer scene, but it was announced recently that they mm. both ceased trading. As a new brewery at the start of its life, how do you guys see the industry panning out for independent craft breweries here in the UK? And what are you guys doing at the moment to shore up your future? You know, it's like I said, uh, right now we're in a phase where we're so new, like any business that's as uh, uh, embryonic as, as ours is, uh, the focus is on uh, survival. It's on making it to through month by month, being able to pay your rent, pay your employees, maybe pay yourself. Um, you know, that's sort of uh, the phase that we're in. And, uh, and um, but for the industry... I am still pretty bullish about craft beer. I think it's, it's in a recession, businesses fail, uh, whether they're breweries or other sectors. That's just something that happens. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a big recession. This is a different kind of recession from the last one. And um, we're going to see more breweries close and we're going to see other businesses fail too. Um, having said that, uh, we are a small brewery with a sort of a business model that's focused around direct sales to customers and local sales to local accounts. And um, I think that has some resilience built into it because uh, we're in London uh, where, where there's a lot of thirsty people, a lot of beer drinkers and people who want to go out and have a nice evening and we can offer them a great experience in our, in our tap room. And um, so I think this is, so the industry itself will probably come out of this stronger on the other side, but it's going to be scary. And there are going to be other breweries that close and we just need to all uh, support each other. And um, so breweries that go out there and undercut one another on price, that's not the way to go right now. I think we need to not be afraid to charge what we need to charge. Where we have higher inflation right now because we all have rising costs. And uh, we don't want to begin a race to the bottom. That's that's how that's very uh, dangerous. And breweries that are doing that, I'm not sure if we should name and shame them, but I think we should all be aware that it's heavily frowned upon and it's not the way to go right now. So I think that's one thing. Um, but we need to all support each other. So continue to so through your own spending and behavior, support local, support independent. Uh, support the breweries that deserve the support. Yeah. And um, and some businesses will be too leveraged because cheap credit uh, was around for a long time. And um, and many breweries, of course, were heavily damaged by COVID as well. And that's something to factor in too. Yeah. What about you, Wally? What's your take on all that? No, I, we, we were discussing this. Um, all we talk about it, is this. <laughs> we, we, we've been discussing, because um, yeah, about an hour before this, we were chatting about it and everything... John, he, he, he puts things a lot better than I do all the time anyway, but yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. And yeah, speaking of those two breweries, um, I wasn't familiar with uh, the second one. Bad Seed. Yeah. Um, but uh, as well, like, even closer to home, the brewery I started at in 2014, One Mile End, they uh, ceased trading uh, first week of this month as well. So it's, it's happening a, a lot closer to home for us as well. So... Yeah, it's it's probably still gonna gonna continue happening, like John said. But we, yeah, just need to support local. Yep. So last question then: as long-time brewers with a lot of experience under your belts, what advice would you give to anyone out there, particularly those who already work in a brewery, 
who were looking to set up their own, apart from, as you said earlier, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> to anyone in your position circa 2020, like if you could go back in time, what would you say to either yourselves or to somebody else who's thinking, oh, craft beer, come on, I've got a homebrew kit. I'm going to be like, I'm going to take over the world. Be like the next cloud water. If you're a home brewer, I would say first get a job at a brewery um, and work as a professional brewer for a few years before you try to open a brewery yourself, uh, firstly. Uh, if you have professional brewing experience and you want to open a brewery, I think you totally should do it. But uh, you need to think really hard about your business plan. You need to think really hard about doing it in a way that is consistent with your values. And you need to raise more money than you think. And definitely engage with um, local residents if you're, <laughs> if you're opening uh, a place like we did that's got as residents all around um, because licensing is a thing and it will trip you up if you don't give it enough attention. Yeah. 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 Learn the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. It's really easy to get lost in all of the other stuff you think is more important. Like I remember uh, all I thought about was how the brewery was going to look, where the equipment fit, where are we going to put the boiler, where are we going to put the, the chiller and, and, yeah, and you there are so many things, and depending on what your expert, where your expertise lies, um, you're going to prioritize, and something's always at the bottom. But the thing, the two or three or four things at the bottom of that list are all just as important. So think about that. Thanks for being on the show this week. Where can people get hold of your beers from, and more importantly, pay you a visit and then follow you on socials and all that jazz? So uh, we're. Yeah, so Great Beyond Brewing Company, we're based literally 90 seconds from Hoxton Overground Station, 10 minutes from Columbia Road Flower Market, 10 minutes from Old Street uh, Tube Station, 15-minute walk from Shoreditch High Street. Sort of that gives you a feel for where we're located. Uh, Our website, so we're actually launching our web shop this week. So we will... Uh, we have pretty limited can runs so far, but we're going to do more and more of those uh, coming up. We have a s- small secondhand canning uh, canning line, and um, on drafts we have some. We're in some sort of local spots, uh, either, either sort of rotating, like I mentioned, Howl at the Moon before, uh, or um, uh, in uh, can at places like kill the cat nearby and, uh, soon to be also, it's, you know, seven seasons, great little bottle shops and, um, a great early supporter of ours, uh, uh, called water into beer and broccoli, uh, shout out to Tim. Uh, so, you know, places like that, that, uh, um, and, and hopefully other places soon too, but the, yeah, the main one of course is our, is our tap room. And uh, we also have, you know, we have a nice little wine and cocktail offering for people who are so inclined. Uh, but obviously it's the, that's the place to go to have the freshest possible beer. Uh, and uh, our socials are just at great beyond beer. So Instagram, uh, we do a little bit on Twitter, a little bit on Facebook and stuff too. We're going to get better at that. I promise. But uh, we're so busy and we're such a small team and we're doing everything ourselves um so we're pretty much mostly active on instagram i think but we're trying to get better at being on the other platforms too but yeah at great beyond beer for socials and great beyond brewing company on union walk in east london brilliant cheers guys thanks thanks nick thanks for having us have a great day well it's that time again at the bar for another week of the hot four podcast Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer 
to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. <laughs>